0: following audio is from a sermon series called rebuilding the ruins the story of ezra and nehemiah begin with the people of god in babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness the god of heaven who is faithful to his promises then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins for more information about sacred city moline please visit scmoline.com Thanks, Carrie. That was not short. There were a lot of tricky names in there. Uh, let's pray. I'll pray for you. You pray for me. Father God, we come to you this morning eager to hear from you. Uh, we, we pray that you would speak to your people this morning, that your sheep would know your voice, that we would heed your words, they would direct our lives, and our affections would be firmly fixed on you as a result of interacting with the voice of God. I ask that you would give me conviction of heart and precision of speech this morning as we navigate through some of these waters in Ephesians chapter, or excuse me, Ezra chapter 4. Would you speak to us? God, I I pray that that you would direct our ways as a church, that you give us a vision for what it is you're trying to do, just as we see a rebuilding project taking uh, underway, rebuilding here at Sacred City Church and beyond. We ask this uh, in in the power of the Spirit who intercedes for us in Christ, our Lord and Savior, to, to the Father. Um, Who pray with praise forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Good morning. You guys doing all right? Okay. All right. Cool. Um, We love the Bible at Sacred City Church. Big fans of it. All of it Old Testament, New Testament, the whole kit and caboodle. We believe that the word of God is quick and powerful, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the word of God is God-breathed, meaning it's inspired by God. It originates in the mind of God. And as we study God's word, we find that his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts, And as we study the scriptures, Paul tells Timothy that it makes us wise for salvation and for life. It's what we need in order to teach and rebuke and to train and correct in righteousness. Not only that, but it equips us for every good work the Lord has prepared for us. The Word of God transcends time, space, cultures, and nations. Not only is it always relevant in all times and all seasons, The word of God is the gravitational force of the cosmos. Hebrews 1.3 says that by the power of his word, God upholds all things. This means that we are included in the all things, that we are sustained by and upheld by the word of God, which is why we have dubbed this year, the 2022, uh, the year that we are feasting to flourish. We are doubling down on our commitment to the word of God, and just like a buffet table laid out in front of us, we're going to town not just this year, but far beyond. We see the word of God as, as if it's manna, the, the manna that God gave to the Israelites in the wilderness, this daily bread that sustains us and nourishes us and grounds us in true reality, the way that God sees the world. Now, every time that we stumble in here on a Sunday morning, every time we open up the word of God for morning devotions or evening devotions, we can expect that the God of the cosmos, the creator of heaven and earth, is speaking to us. In fact, as God speaks to us, we can expect that he will bring about refreshing as we hear his word. Psalm 19.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing to the soul. And I don't know about you, but every time I open up the word, every time we come together, I sense my desperation, my need for this, the sustenance that I need, the refreshing that my soul needs, so much so that we need it even more so than the air that we breathe. The word of God is powerful. You can build your life on it. And since January, we've been going through the book of Ezra to be refreshed, to to be trained so that we would grow and come to understand the world as God sees it. And the story of Ezra is a story about rebuilding. It's about rebuilding a community that has a priority upon worship, the worship of the one true God of Yahweh, the God who speaks, the God who creates and redeems and restores And these people who were once in Babylonian exile, God stirs up in their hearts, and in the hearts of King Cyrus, who was the king of Persia that began this whole thing back in Ezra chapter 1, he stirs up in their hearts to go back home, take that 500-mile journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem, and to rebuild the temple, the place of worship, the place where God's presence dwelt among his people. And so God stirs the king. He stirs his people. They go back. They obey the stirring that God has created, and they start shipping away little by little at rebuilding the temple, and it spills into rebuilding the city of Jerusalem that was ransacked by the Babylonians. And what we saw last week as we were going through the story is in chapter 4, we begin to see that this building project that was mandated by the Lord— begins to face strong opposition from their their pagan neighbors. The the Israelites, who are monotheists, fully devoted to Yahweh, the one true God, the God of gods, and the God who says that all other idols are, are, are worthless idols, they have this laser focus on their worship to God. This offends their pagan neighbors, who are polytheists, And they start to face roadblocks, they they face opposition, they're discouraged, Um, there's fear tactics involved, all kinds of other things, bribery and things of that nature that interfere with this project that God has told them to go and to complete. And today as we come to verses 6 through 24... We face a new major roadblock. There's something bigger. There's more opposition. It it, it sort of increases and and surmounts into this, this massive problem, a massive issue for the rebuilders. And as we look at this massive problem for the rebuilders, it actually presents a massive problem for us as the readers, Now, this is a problem that you may not be aware of. It might be something that just sort of went right past your face. And and to be honest with you, it it did with me, too, as I began my studies this week. But this is a problem that if we are unaware of it, uh, it it can carry major implications later on down the road. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at these two dilemmas that we face. First, we have the reader's dilemma. And then we have the Rebuilder's Dilemma. Those are the two things. So let's start first with the problem, the dilemma for the readers. What what is this dilemma? What is the problem? Let's first look at verses 6 through 8 of chapter 4. And Carrie pronounced these words so great, and I'm going to butcher them, so just bear with me. Verse 6 says, Actually, go back to verse 5. It says, All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's how long the opposition goes. And then here we see in verse 6, And in the reign of Osiris, yep, In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and of Jerusalem. Then in verse 7, it says, In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabeel and the rest of their associates, They wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And if you go down a little bit further to the end of chapter 4, it talks about this this opposition, this this stoppage that happens until the second year of the reign of King Darius, who's king of Persia. So what we have here are a lot of names of kings. And you might be wondering, who's in charge right now? What's going on? Who's ruling the Persian Empire and has having this influence over the people of Jerusalem? Now in chapter 1, we see it begins with Cyrus, and then the mention of Ahasuerus, and then Artaxerxes, and then Darius, it's so confusing. And even as we go in further to chapter 6 and then chapter 7 of Ezra, you get this flip-flop between the kings, uh, King Darius and King um, Artaxerxes, and, and you're just wondering what in the world is going on. How is this, like there's there's a question of the timeline that this this, this brings to the surface. And this question of the timeline really sparks a debate of chronology, of of what is going on? How do we make sense of this? Um, How is history unfolding here? And basically, it comes down to this. You have two perspectives that are basically competing with each other. There's this debate between the biblical timeline as the scripture articulates, or there is the the timeline that the historians and the experts present to us based upon their scholarship and archaeology. And let me just show you how this works out. Many scholars when they see these different names that we here in Ezra chapter 4 they see those different names and they assume that these are different rulers and 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 um, the Greeks were the ones because later on the Greeks would defeat the Persians, and and the one who wins the wars gets to write the history books. And so that the Persia or the Greeks had, um, they had specific names, Greek names that they would use for Persian kings, which is kind of uh, interesting. It, it's weird that the, the Persian king's names would not be the ones that are used most commonly. It's actually the Greek names. And, and the scholars go through, and this might bore some of you. I'm just going to tell you, this part of the sermon might be a little bit boring if you're not a history nerd, but bear with me. We're going to get through it, and it's going to be important later on. Okay, so they lay out, there's this, this succession of kings where the Cyrus is a king, um, and he's the one who starts this, and then after that, um, Cambyses, um, who is his son, reigns after that for eight years, and then we get introduced to Darius, who starts his reign in, in 522 BC, and then uh, Xerxes one reigns after that, and then Artaxerxes. uh, Meloginous reigns after that. So that we have this long time domain that spans nearly 100 years that covers the story of Ezra and Nehemiah if we follow the historians and the Greek references that are made throughout history. Now, that, that's fine, except for the Bible. <laughs> except for the Scriptures. When, when we let Scripture interpret Scripture... It tells us that Ezra and Nehemiah are both contemporaries, and it makes the probability of this hundred-year span from the beginning of the building project to the end of it pretty unlikely because Ezra and Nehemiah are placed as contemporaries. At the beginning of Ezra, we're told that this guy named Nehemiah goes along with them back to rebuild the altar, to to rebuild the temple. Later on in Nehemiah's writing, he talks about his, the contemporary nature of Ezra, who's doing the work of teaching uh, God's people the Torah. And so Scripture points to the fact that Ezra and Nehemiah are, are not ha- having this huge distance apart and just maybe a little bit of overlap, but actually from the beginning, there's a great deal of overlap between the works, and both of them are focused on unique things. Ezra is coming to teach the Word of God, to, to correct worship in accordance to the Word of God, and Nehemiah has this emphasis on rebuilding the city. And so when we look at Scripture and let Scripture interpret Scripture, it gives us this condensed and shortened timeline that does not span 100 years, like the scholars and the historians might suggest, one one that's much shorter, more in the time domain of 50 to 60 years. And so this is the dilemma. This this, this is our problem as readers. Which one is it? Who, Who do we listen to? Whose timeline actually is the real timeline? Who do we trust? Do we trust the experts or do we trust Scripture? And there's this unfortunate tendency for us to take the Bible and get it and bend it and twist it and get it to try to fit within secular history. This isn't the only place in the Scriptures where we have a problem like this or a little dilemma like this. When we hear the authorities of science and history and archaeology say, we've discovered this, and this is indisputable, Christians are tempted to kowtow to this sort of authority and take them for their word. And this is something that happens not not just with secular historians, but also Christian historians, Christian scholars, Christian commentators. But if we are people of the book... If we love the word of God, like I said, we love the word of God, then our reflex ought to be first to trust the word of God rather than trying to get it to benefit the secular historians. To us, God's word is far more authoritative. It's far more true. Even in the words of Jordan Peterson, I don't know if you saw this when he sat down with Joe Rogan a couple weeks ago, he said this, it was unbelievable. He said, the interesting thing about the Bible is that it's truer than true. It's the basis for truth. And we hold that, that, that's a a Christian thing to say, I'm not saying he's Christian, but he might be, he might be turning that way, but that is a reality as Christians that we hold, that the Bible is truer than true, it is the foundation of truth. And so when we have this dilemma of choosing between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God as articulated in the scriptures, our default, our tendency should be to default to the word of God, to take God as his word. In fact, as Christians, we, we ought, ought to rather be accused of trusting God's word too much than the other way around. Now, when we trust God's word to this extent, that does not mean that the conundrums, these dilemmas that, that arise throughout scripture, whether historical or from like a, a critical biblical lens, it doesn't mean that all those dissipate. We actually have to think through these things. We have to reason and solve these problems from within the text. For example, with this right here, what do we do about the names and the timelines? How does all of this add up? If we're going to insist upon taking God as word and holding to a shortened timeline, how can we make this make sense? If the secular historians say the opposite. Well, thankfully, there are faithful Christians who take God as his word, and one of them being a man named James Jordan who invested a lot of time uh, in the chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, and he points us in in the direction which I I think is most uh, convincing, that when we see these different names throughout Ezra chapter four, they do not represent different men. Rather, they are different names for the same man. They are thrown at names for the king of Persia, much like we see throne names for Pharaoh, right? If you talk about Egyptian history and you talk about Pharaoh, it's very important to determine which Pharaoh you're talking about. It's a title. Abimelech is another one. From, from the scriptures, speaks of Abimelech. It's a title. It's an office. It's a position among a nation. But here we see that, that it's likely that in the Persian kingdom, there are different names used to refer to the same office. Similar to like how Christians, um, when we talk about pastors, We've got pastors, elders, overseers, bishops, shepherds, all different names for the same office, for the same position. It's something that's common. It's not a totally absurd thought to think that one man could have different titles, different names to reflect different things. Now, part of the reason that that this is convincing to me is that um, not all nations in that time would use the Greek name for Persian kings. So Israel, the people of God, are a Hebrew nation. They had their own worldview. They had their own historical assumptions. They had their own names for certain rulers that oftentimes or occasionally would differentiate from the rest of the world. And so it's common for different nations to use different names, and we can see some name fluidity throughout the scriptures and throughout history. And one of the reasons for this is because a particular name often conveys a particular meaning. This is common in Hebrew literature, Hebrew names. Names have meanings, and they serve a certain purpose within a literary function. For example, why did um, Jacob become Israel? Well, one who wrestles with God. God changed his name. Why did Sarai become Sarah, right? Names are important. They convey this kind of meaning. So it's believed that this is also the case. And so here when we see different names like Darius and and Xerxes and Artaxerxes and Aserhas, still working on that one, they all mean different things. For example, it's believed that Darius means, the meaning of this is doer of good. And so when the scriptures refers to King Darius, the king of Persia, uh, as Darius, he is the doer of good. He's doing the right thing. When we see scripture refer to him as Xerxes, that name means hero among kings. There's this sort of valiant, triumphant sort of overtones that his name brings. Artaxerxes means king of justice. Uh, this other one, Osiris, means chief of rulers. They all have this unique inflection or unique meaning behind it that as the authors of first of and second Chronicles, of 1 and second Kings, of Ezra, of Nehemiah, of Esther... They use these, these not names, these titles, these throne names to point to a specific kind of meaning behind it. And so my conviction, and this is not a make or break deal, we can disagree with this on the end of the day, but I do think that there are important implications that go beyond this, is that the person that we're talking about when we see um, Xerxes, or Artaxerxes, and Darius, and H- Osiris, is that it's speaking of the man that will be referred to as King Darius, the king of Persia. All different throne names for the same man. There's plenty of biblical support for this. In addition to that, there's also other historical support. There's even historical support that shows that King Darius would refer to himself as King Artaxerxes in inscriptions and chiseling on the walls. And and while this is not necessarily the mainstream Understanding of the, this chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah, there is very good biblical evidence as well as historical evidence to support the shortened timeline. Okay, are you with me? Okay. That was a nerd session, all right? Thank you for indulging me. Now, let me tell you why this matters. You hear all that and say, all right, fine, who cares? Shortened timeline, no big deal. Long timeline, I don't really care. It's still true. What we see happening here in Ezra and Nehemiah is still true. But what's the big deal here? Right? We're just talking about dates, relatively harmless. But what you don't understand or what you may not see is that this could very well be the first domino that topples a whole other myriad of dominoes. That if we start to make compromises here in trusting the infallibility of God's word, the inspiration of God's word, a bunch of other things can topple down the road. There's a lot at stake here, specifically the doctrine of biblical inspiration and of biblical infallibility. Now, as Christians, we hold to the truth of the scriptures when it says in 2 Timothy that it's God-breathed, and we know that God does not lie. And so if we do Side with the scholars. If we do go with that long timeline of the historians, what's at stake here? Well, if they're wrong, if we're wrong as Christians holding to what the Bible supports as a shortened timeline, if it's wrong here, where else could the scriptures be wrong? If this is wrong here, we can start calling into question the validity of the resurrection. Is that a real thing that happened? As Christians, we say, yes, that is a historical thing that happened, that is fact. There is currently a resurrected Christ seated in the right hand, ruling over all of the cosmos. But if we start to call into question the, the, uh, the authority, the inspiration, the infallibility of Scripture, it, it would be easy to say, well, that's just a metaphor. The same thing with the family. Well, if Scripture is wrong about this... How how do we know that scriptures write about how we ought to order our households? That husbands, that men should be men and lead like godly men, and wives should be godly women and submit to their husbands as as if unto the Lord. And children should honor their parents and obey them as is fitting in the Lord. And and households ordered in this way that, that shows this relational ecosystem of grace and order and God's love. Now, if Scripture's wrong about the timeline, well, maybe it's wrong about the family, and we can start to construct our own ideas about how households should be organized. Why stop there? Go to ethics and morality. See, this is a domino that, if knocked over, it can reach far into other places. And one of the places right now is within sexuality, within gender. These questions of, well, if it's wrong here... Maybe God is wrong about creating them male and female. Maybe, maybe it's wrong, then, to say that marriage ought to be one man and one woman in covenant relationship for all of life. See, if this is wrong, there's a lot at stake. The bottom can fall out very quickly here if we are not diligent to uphold the authority, the inspiration, and the infallibility of Scripture. So as Christians, we'll often find ourselves, if we aim to be faithful in this world, we will find ourselves in this tug of war between the so-called experts, right the secular historians, the secular... uh, Well, anybody who's leading in any sort of thought circle will feel this tug of war between what they say and what the Word of God says. As Christians, when we see that Scripture can defend itself, that Scripture can validate itself from within itself... We learn to confidently rely on God's word. We learn to constantly trust God's word. We learn to build our lives upon God's word. Because as Isaiah says in chapter 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. It is a solid rock for our lives. So this this is our problem. This is the dilemma that we face as leaders. Who do we give our ear to? Who do we trust the experts or the Word of God. We ought to trust the Word of God at all times. And we'll come back to this in a second, but now we got to address this problem, this dilemma that the rebuilders face. And what we see here in this long passage is there is this intensified opposition. They've been sent to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city after God has stirred up in the heart of King Cyrus, who is the first king. He stirred up in the heart of the rebuilders to go back home to undertake this massive project. And we see this massive project that would bring glory to God is now in jeopardy. It's being threatened. The adversaries, the neighbors from Samaria come and they threaten the work of the Israelites. And as they do so, we see this escalation in their tactics. And as we get into into verse 6, we see... The way that the adversaries generate this legitimate, uh, we see they're able to generate legitimate political opposition with King Darius. And what we'll find that by the end of chapter 4, they've done such a good job that the work on the temple, the work on the city of Jerusalem grinds to a halt. And then King Darius appoints the adversaries as some kind of enforcer to make sure God's people cannot continue with their mission. how does this all happen? How does this unfold? Well, believe it or not, they wrote a letter. (laughs) They wrote a letter. They sat down a couple letters, actually a few letters. They wrote a letter to the king, and it actually worked. And one of the things that they do in this letter in verses 9 and 10, they present themselves as speaking for a multitude of people. This massive mob of people. You see, Rehum, uh, he, he's speaking. Well, he lists them all out. Um, Rehum, the commander. Uh, Shemishami, not sh- Oh, gosh, guys. Carrie, I need your help. Um, the rest of the associates, the judges, the governor, governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, the uh, Elamanites. You see, the rest of the nations, right? What are they doing? They're presenting themselves to the king as a giant mob. We are the popular vote, is what they're saying. Everyone says the Israelites are a problem. And what's happened here, this is is interesting, that the common enemy of the Israelites has brought this band of unlikely allies together to oppose the work of God. Now, as the Israelites are building the temple, their work expands from the altar to the temple, and now they're they're working on rebuilding the city. This is one of the things that they key the king in in on here. They're building homes, right? Um, You can't live in a tent forever. They build homes. They're they're building walls around the city for safety. They're trying to plant roots in the place which they had been once uprooted from. So they're probably, likely... Starting businesses, they're starting schools. They're they're generating a new life for themselves in this place that was laid desolate. And the adversaries see this and they take offense with this. They they don't like what's going on, partly because they've been excluded from that. We saw that last week. Because um, if the Israelites were to include them in this project, it would be very likely they, they were they were people of a divided allegiance between Yahweh and other pagan gods, and the leaders of Israel said, we will not be divided. We will remain faithful to God in this project, and so they say, this isn't your job. This is ours. Now, they don't like this, and so they start writing a letter, an angry letter, I would imagine. It's loaded with all kinds of accusations and, and really, virtue signaling, that you see a little bit of brown nose in here in verse 14. It's like, we're, we're the, the folks who eat from the salt of the palace. You've been so kind to us. We're your royal servants. We thought we ought to help you by letting you know that these people are a problem. So they pander to King Darius, and they tattletale in verse 12. They say, these people of Jerusalem that have come back... They're rebuilding a rebellious and wicked city. Not only that, do they, he says that Jerusalem, the people of Israel, have this history where they do not play nice with foreign kings. And these guys, the adversaries, tell King Darius to go back to the history books in verse 15. Go back to the history books and see how they've created all kinds of strife and division and rebellion with other kings. Now what they're probably referring to here about this, to say that, that, the, that Jerusalem is a rebellious and wicked city, they're probably referring to Hezekiah's rebellion against Assyria. Assyria was another pagan nation that rose up in the ranks, was very strong, they moved into uh, the, the promised land and started conquering different nations and, and um, declaring victory and saying, this is our dominion. And as part of our dominion, you need to pay us taxes now. You belong to us. You're under our authority. And Hezekiah, who was a godly king, a king that came through um, with, with sweeping reforms in Israel to devote the people uh, of Israel to faithfulness and to God's righteousness, to, to, to devote themselves to the soul worship of Yahweh, this is what makes them a wicked and rebellious nation in the eyes of pagans. And when you are devoted to the righteousness of God, this will oftentimes put you at odds with the foreign powers, with the kingdoms that are at play. So under Hezekiah's reign, they're aiming at righteousness and devotion to God. They're they're aiming at holiness, yet they are labeled as being rebellious and wicked. And that's that's just what the culture does. They call good things wicked and wicked things good. And so the adversaries come to the king and say, if this rebuilding continues on, if, if the rebuilding of Jerusalem isn't stopped, this is going to be a major threat to your kingdom of Persia. And two things specifically are, are, are in jeopardy. First, and they're pretty, pretty expectable for as far as kingdoms go, first is money. In verse 13, they say, listen, if you let the Jews keep doing what they're doing, they're not going to pay taxes. They're not going to pay tribute you will not get the money that you are, are deserving of as being the ruler of this land. And what it's going to do is it's going to affect the treasury of Persia, affect your bottom dollar, and before you know it, you're going to be bankrupt. Now, the other piece that, that, that they call into question is the power of the king of Persia in verse 16. It says if you let him keep going, if you let him keep rebuilding, you will have no possession in the providence. You're going to lose the influence on that side of the river. So the king is either going to be without money or without power. Now, this is something that would concern a lot of rulers. And when rulers are fearful, when rulers are insecure, they can be easily swayed when those two things are called into question. And that's what we see happen here in verse 21. The king of Persia shuts it down. He shuts down the building project with a decree. He says that there will be no more building of the city of Jerusalem until I say so. Not only that, he basically, in verse 23, gives gives all the adversaries these little plastic shiny badges to go back home and be enforcers, right? To use power and force and swing some of this authority around to get God's people to stop. Now, this narrative that we see here in Ezra about political, about governmental opposition is something that is not isolated to the past. If you're paying attention right now to what's going on in the world, going on in our country, there is a rise in governmental opposition in both the spirit and in legislation. I don't say this to be a fearmonger monger or anti-American, but are, are, as Christians, are allegiances to the Word of God. And when we see government opposition sort of rise up in the spirit and in the legislation, it's because policy is always downstream of the culture. It's always downstream of the popular opinion, or at least the loudest voices, of the mob. And so for a long time, the culture that we are a part of has been hostile towards Christians, has been hostile towards biblical worldview. And more and more, there's this pushing of the agenda of the experts who say this is what's right and this is what's wrong, stacked up against what God's word says. And you don't have to go back very far to see this. In fact, you go back to the beginning of of COVID in in California with the shutdowns, which are still kind of going on. It's kind of crazy. The experts say you cannot gather for worship. Yet faithful pastors and congregations continue pressing on because the question is, who do I need to submit to, to the government or to my Lord? And if I have to disobey God to obey the government, then something is wrong there. You can see this in the C4 bill that's that's been passed in Canada right now. That that is in regards to well what it, what it actually attacks is the ability to preach both publicly and have private conversation about a biblical sex ethic. Right? To to hand, to stand on the biblical foundation that marriage is for one man and one woman. If you say anything other than if you say anything Um, Contrary to what anybody or what the culture is wanting, then then it's actually a criminal offense. Up to five years in prison. So so it's likely that there will be pastors in Canada that will be in prison for preaching on a biblical sex ethic. And if you think, okay, well, that's Canada. They're across the border. Just this week, in Indiana, of all places, a relatively conservative state has uh, created this ordinance, Ordinance 3121, that has a lot of the same language that you see in the Canadian C4 bill, that limits what pastors, what counselors can say in regards to sexuality. You can also see this with discussions that are going right now on what role um, the government should play in education. Who should get to determine what kids learn and, and a lot of people are advocating that it's the government. They're the experts. They should be the ones setting the curriculum. Parents shouldn't have any say in what's being taught to their children. And as Christians, that ought to concern us. Like, we, we are the ones responsible. Not, not The government doesn't get to say who's responsible for training their kids or teaching their kids. God is the one who speaks and says who's responsible for this. And so if we just let the authorities or the experts tell us what to do, we will quickly find ourselves compromising on the word of God. We'll find ourselves obeying the authorities of the land, which will put us in a position of disobeying the God of the cosmos. And in this day and age, there are plenty of people who are willing to function as the adversaries to uh, be the enforcers of such things. There is a, a mob of people out there very loud people that want to enforce what the experts say to prevent God's work of gospel ministry from being done in cities and countries and across the world. They want to see. A cease planting churches. They want to. They don't want to see godly households uh, established. They don't want to see godly men and godly women and godly children. They don't want to see the renewal of the city through the work of Christ. Now, what's driving this? Why are, are why are the nations raging? Why are there authorities making claims and saying things that are opposed to the scriptures? And why is this adversarial relationship between Christians and and the progressive authorities? It's because every time we say Jesus is Lord, every time that we claim to the supremacy and authority of Christ in all matters, it threatens the kings of the world. It threatens King Cyrus and Caesar and Darius and our authorities. So there's this fear of losing power or if not a fear of losing power, a desire to gain more power in these places that drives this adversarial relationship. We might look at this opposition that we face in this day and age and be sad about it, want to curse it, because it just stands in the way of the work that God's called us to, right? After all, the building project stops. Verse 24, it grinds to a halt. The adversaries are enforcing the stoppage. But if we're thinking about um, think about Ezra and Nehemiah in terms of us or these people doing something or building something for God, um, we're a little bit short sighted. There's a bigger building project. There's a bigger rebuilding project that's underway. It's not about us building something for God, but rather God building something for God. Now, what is He building? It's not, stick, it's not sticks and stones and mortar and brick. God is building for Himself a people, God is building us. He's building godly men and women, godly homes and churches and cities. He's creating a people who are faithful to him through thick and thin, even when the word and the experts compete with one another. He's instilling in us a conviction. He's giving us a strength and resiliency to persevere through this day and age. See, God is building for himself a people And trying to build a people without opposition is like trying to make bricks without straw. The straw is the fiber, the straw is the strength that holds those bricks together and keeps them from falling apart. The the opposition is the rebar in the concrete. It's necessary. For us to face opposition. Because opposition strengthens us. It's the fiber that creates the strength. This is is why not only does God uh, allow for this opposition to take place as the mission uh, ensues, but it's a necessity that opposition would come. Because opposition generates strength. Therefore, we ought to welcome the opposition that comes our way, and lean into it, and press on, and not lose heart. Here we see the Israelites stopping for a a season, and and eventually they'll get called back to it, because the word of God will cry out to them through the prophets, and they'll get right back to it. But unlike the Israelites who stopped in this moment, Jesus never stopped Jesus knew the mission that had been set before him, the task that lied ahead, and he knew that the whole way through his, his birth and adolescence into adulthood and his ministry, he would face opposition. There would be a lot of people who disliked what he had to say, who disliked what he stood for, who, who wanted to prevent what he came to do from happening. And Jesus saw it through to the end. C.S. Lewis talks about this. Um, uh, You don't know the strength of temptation. You don't know the strength of adversity or, or opposition until you press on through it. It's the same way that you don't know the strength of the wind if you were to lay down. Right? You only know the strength of the wind if you keep pressing on into it. And the more you press on into it, the more it strengthens and builds up the muscle that's needed to stay true to the task. Jesus had this. Jesus resisted every temptation to stop, every opposition that came his way. Jesus pressed against the resistance. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, it says this, Consider him... Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. So, what, what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, think about Jesus. Know that he faced adversity in his ministry, in his mission. And when you think of Jesus, do not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point. Of shedding your blood. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying that Jesus resisted to the point where he put it all on the line. That his body was broken, his blood was shed. That's how devoted he was to the word of God. That's how bought into the mission that he was. He was resilient. Why? What enabled Jesus to be resilient? Well, for starters, he knew and he trusted that the word of God was true. He based his life on it. He acted upon it. But he also had the ability to see that this opposition, the adversity you face, comes from the hand of a kind father. Hebrews 12 later goes on to talk about this discipline, this, 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 um, the adversity that we face, the hardships, is discipline in the hands of the Lord. It, it's, it's what God use, uses to train us in righteousness. He says, for, for the moment, this is discipline seems painful and, and undesirable, but the product of this, the product of the opposition, creates something that is a fortified people. And Jesus was that. And so if we are going to follow Jesus, if we're gonna be Christians that are about the mission of God, that are all about building a community that worships God for who he is, as, who he, how he has revealed himself to us in the word of God, if we're gonna build up households that reflect godliness and righteousness, if we're gonna establish missional communities and churches and work for the renewal of our city, we must keep grinding in the spirit of Christ. We must embrace the adversity. We have to have the the eyes to see what's going on. And that's one of the things that the, the word of God does, grounds us in reality. It gives us a new lens to view things through so that when we see adversity coming, we can see that it's coming from the hand of God, that he's training us, he's establishing us, he's strengthening us, he's giving us and increasing our conviction in the word of God and as we hold fast to the word of God and want to do right by God, we must draw from the energy and the power that has been made available to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of Christ that works mightily in us, that supplies us for everything with everything that we need to live in righteousness. And so it's in seeing Christ who persevered and, and mimicking Christ, following, being an imitator of Christ, that we want to rise up to the command that the Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says this. Well, first he grounds us. In verse 50, 57, he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So even in all the opposition, even in the face of adversity, Christians stand from the place of victory. We have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's from that place of victory and triumph he urges us to do this. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There are gonna be days where it feels like what we're doing is all in vain, that we're losing ground. The hard work of disciplining our kids and investing in our marriages and establishing this beauty and glory that comes when the gospel permeates every square inch of our lives. There are going to be times where we're tempted to lose heart. But because of the gospel, we have great reason, great conviction to continue on in steadfastness and being immovable, abounding in the work of our Lord because God shows us that our work is not in vain. God is building for himself something and that something is us, a people. And so let us lend ourselves towards that work, lean into the work that God is doing and as he changes us to reflect his glory, would we create cultures and places and things that reflect the glory of Christ for our good and for his glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you are the God of history no one knows history better than you, Father. When we come to your word, we come with conviction. We come with trust. Help us to be a people that further trusts you, that, that as we go through adversity and we've, as we face opposition, the thing that we need to have steel in our spine is the word of God. Help, help us to be people saturated in the word, to know what we need for life and godliness that's been prepared and equipped and, and given to us through Christ. Help us to know the will of you, our Father. Help us to do the will of the Father, just as Christ has done. God, would you turn us into a people that makes much of your name, a people that are, are have this embedded glory because we are your workmanship, that you have created us anew in Christ, to walk in your ways, and you've prepared for us good works that you would be glorified in us. We thank you, Father. We love you. We want to be about all the things that you were about. I we pray this in Jesus' name.